Welcome to Totally Biased Media, the podcast where three brothers that know nothing about video games tell you everything they know about video games. I'm Jordan Walkup, and my other car is the 2005 BMW M3 GTR from Need for Speed Most Wanted. I'm Jason Simmons, and you're watching Disney Channel. I'm Jackson Walkup, and every day, they're out there making ducktails. We've told you our opinions on dozens of games, but we've never taken the time to tell you why. On this episode, we're digging into what we look for in video games, why we play video games, and how our video game opinions might actually differ more than you would expect. And now, let's get into it. I feel like this episode is going to be weird if I don't give some context for why I wanted to make it. So... Our whole thing from the beginning has been, you know, totally biased media. We're not professionals. We're not in the industry. We're just a couple of guys being dudes that talk about video games. But I feel like I realized pretty early on that if we're mainly reviewing like new release games and games that are really culturally significant, our opinions tend to land sort of in the same realm. Like, I think there's only been, probably only been one game we reviewed on the podcast that I think we actually had significantly different opinions on, and it was Tiny Tina's Wonderlands, which is not a game that matters. So (laughs) That game sucked. And I liked it a lot, but... And I also (laughs) thought it sucked. You didn't think it sucked when it was out. (laughs) No, I was blinded by nostalgia for the second game, which I played a year before that. But... I think, you know, when we talk about games outside of this podcast, we actually have a lot of different opinions. Like, we we disagree on a lot of different things. And I think it's really, really obvious when you look at what our favorite games are, which we have discussed before, and we've tried to talk respectfully about the other two's opinions when we've done this. So this time, I wanted to take an episode where we lay out what's different about our opinions and to sort of help establish sort of a baseline for like, you know, when you're hearing one of us say something, what it actually means. So I think the best way to do that is for us to sort of talk about some of the games that we really, really love that the other hosts don't necessarily care for as much. So Jason, I would say your taste is probably the most distinct of the three of us. So why don't you kick us off with just a couple of games you really love that we don't love? (laughs) I think one of the big ones uh, that I've mentioned on the podcast, we've even done an episode on, I love Disco Elysium. (laughs) I think it's a one of a kind, like once in a generation kind of game, and we're probably never going to see anything similar to it, especially after what happened to its the company that made it. Um, R.I.P. Zom. Yeah. <laughs> I love Disco Elysium, and I know you guys were kind of lukewarm on it, right? I don't know that Jackson even played it. I didn't play it. Yeah, that sounds about right. He makes fun of me for playing wordy games, and that's maybe the second most wordy <laughs> game I've ever played. <laughs> I I really enjoyed it when we were playing it for the episode, but there was always something about it that stopped me from being able to really connect with it. And 
once we recorded the episode, I don't think I touched it again after that. I never even finished it. Something about games like that, they're overwhelming, and there's a lot of pressure for me with them. It's something that I've struggled with a lot with really any game that's sort of, you know, intellectual intellectual, or at the very least is painted that way. Whereas I go in with so much pressure of like, if I don't like this, I'm going to feel like an idiot. Or more specifically, if I don't like this, people will think I'm an idiot. I don't know where they're going to pull that information from. <laughs> but games like Disco Elysium, I, I really have a hard time getting into because of that. I, I think that's the main reason. There's probably like a much bigger psychological thing there that I don't even want to think about. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of get that. And my other favorite game of all time also kind of falls into that with Fallout New Vegas. I know, I think you've both tried to play it several times and neither one of you has ever gotten, I, I don't even know how far you guys have gotten. It doesn't sound like either of you have ever actually made it to New Vegas. <laughs> no, I have not. The farthest I've got no. is like 10 hours in. Uh, yeah. I would say the game doesn't even really actually kind of get going until you've made it to New Vegas. Like, there are some major events that happen before that, but I feel like once you make it, if you, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And I mean that to say, like, once you've made it to Vegas, you can basically travel anywhere in the map and see anything the game has to offer. But until then, I, I think generally I feel like a little too weak to do too much exploring. But that's kind of getting way off the point. I really like <laughs> yeah. New Vegas because it's one of those few games where as you're doing stuff, like every quest, it feels like, I, I mean, I know it's just like, it's just tricks, right? It, it's just barks and whatnot of, Characters saying random things, but it, it feels like your actions actually have an effect on the world around you. And I think that that's so cool and so unique. And I really wish there were more games where I could honestly say, like, my actions matter to the world around me. And New Vegas just has that in spades. Disco Elysium has it as well. But I think that the decisions you make in Disco Elysium affect you internally a lot more than the world around you. But I, I think like the big connective tissue between Disco Elysium and New Vegas is like every decision you make in the game feels like it has some weight behind it. It feels like it actually either affects the world or affects you, how people see you and react to you. And honestly, I don't really think there are any other games that quite scratch that itch for me. I mean, there are a few, I'm sure, out there, but I haven't played them. Now, this might be a loaded question, but why do you think that that's something that so few games manage to capture? I mean, I think the biggest part is just it's a lot of work, right? And it's work that it doesn't add additional content to the game. Like, making it to where people actually respond differently to you based on, like, what faction you're in or who you're hanging out with, like, that doesn't necessarily create new content. I don't think there are a huge number of quests that are actually like significantly different based on, you know, who you're with or what, what factions you're with. I mean, I, I know I, I kind of just said that, but like the decisions that you've made feel like they affect the world in a way that is one hard to replicate, right? Because 
it would be it's a lot of extra writing you have to do sure i kind of lost my point there i I was mostly (laughs) just trying to say like having the world react to you in those ways doesn't it's probably one of the last things you do right because you can lock quests and stuff like that behind it but it's not actually designing those quests a lot of stuff in new vegas is there like there are a lot of quests that you can only do if you're with a certain faction but generally most quests you can always do no matter what but the way that people will react to you the things that are easy or difficult they depend on the choices you've made that stuff is just harder to do and it probably is a lot of work i'm not a game developer well for me it's it's hard to even picture how games like these are made uh probably more so with new vegas just because of the difference in scope but you have to think video games are just a lot of if then statements and it could be something simple like if character has done x quest when they do y quest change this but with fallout there is so much more to it it's if player has done x quest and has x standing with x faction when they do y quest in y town then x y and z characters take you know say this instead of this like there is a just looking at it in terms of like the mathematics of it is so overwhelming because there are so many things that have to go in so many different directions that all have to be accounted yeah, for. Exactly. And most games just cut their losses on that. Well, a lot of games have that kind of thing built in, but I think what really sets New Vegas apart from the rest of them is that New Vegas doesn't just have it set up where like this faction likes you. So I'm going to say this. There are times in New Vegas where it's not quite as black and white as this faction likes you and this one dislikes you. Sometimes it'll be like, this faction generally likes you, but you've done enough bad things to them that they're still kind of wary about you. And people will react to that. Like, even though if you look at your, you know, reputation with a faction, it could say a hundred. But the fact that at some point you've done bad things to them too, like, people remember that and they will remark upon that. And it really just kind of comes down to the fact that New Vegas keeps track of the good things you've done and the bad things you've done. Whereas a lot of games just kind of do a sliding scale. Yeah. And I I think like your game has to be designed around that kind of thing from the beginning, even though that work probably isn't actually going to be done towards until towards the end, at least of the writing process. And I don't know that, a lot of developers really have that kind of clarity of vision so early in a game's design process. Unless it's something like, I, I'm sure there are a lot of, you know, visual novels and stuff like that out there that kind of hit on the same thing that I'm saying, but there aren't a lot of like big narrative driven action games. And there certainly are not very many open world RPGs like that. Jackson, I'm going to, I'm going to turn it over to you for a second here. Like Jason was saying, we've never really even like given Fallout New Vegas an honest shot. What do you think about what do you think it is about the game that's holding you back from really diving in? Everything about Fallout New Vegas is stuff that I see and I think, wow, I would absolutely love this game. I want to play it so bad. And then I start playing it. And then I just feel overwhelmed by how much stuff is in the game. And then I play it for like 10 hours and think, oh, I haven't done the main story since the tutorial. (laughs) 
And then and then I just kind of get like a little too lost in it. And I don't know where they go from there. And then I play something else. Yeah, I have a really similar experience with a lot of open world games in general is I get so far away from the core of the game that I feel like I would either have to give up what I've invested time in or I would have to just like cut my losses and, uh, you know, go way back and focus on the story. And I'm just I have a hard time committing to a lot in a very, very big open game. It's hard for me to play games that require like a big commitment to how long you're going to be playing them. Like I have the same issue with like shows. Like it is very hard for me to watch a show that's like seven seasons, like one hour episodes. And I get that same feeling with huge games like New Vegas. Like I know like it's going to be a big time commitment. Yeah, I can kind of get that. I mean, New Vegas is a fairly long game, but I think you'd be surprised. It's not quite as long as what you probably imagine. I think generally most of my playthroughs of New Vegas are just around like 50, 60 hours, which what you expect from most games. Although you play a lot more like narrative driven 20 hour games. So I can see how that'd be a little bit different. One thing I will say about New Vegas, though, and part of the reason I kind of drive the whole like actually get to Vegas thing. The story kind of changes once you get to Vegas, like until you get there, your main quest is just to find the guy who shot you in the head. But your quest after that, it definitely is something where like every side quest you do is kind of building towards it. I think that's something good about New Vegas is like generally most of your big quests are going to come from maybe not the faction leadership. Like you're not going to get a lot of quests from the president of the NCR, but you'll run into a scientist from the NCR who sends you out. He's like, okay, well, there's a bunch of plants around this vault. Can you go check it out? Because we can't get plants to grow everywhere, grow anywhere else, but they're just pouring out of this place. And there's no one in the vault to actually, you know, tend to them. So this is insane. So like when you do that quest, no matter what outcome you get, you can kind of see how that's going to affect whatever faction you're working for, the NCR, the Legion, So you kind of, you don't feel like you're wasting time when you're doing side quests quite as much because generally there's going to be something about the side quests that kind of ties it back to your main quest, whether it's helping one of the factions or getting yourself better armed or just helping the people of the wasteland because, I mean, there's always someone in need of help. And I think once you kind of get past the, the initial few quests and get into new vegas when that quest line kind of changes it it definitely changes how you see the world how you view the world of the game i think that's pretty unique it's interesting that you choose uh disco elysium and new vegas as your two games for this because uh over the past week those are both games that i've considered trying to get into (laughs) disco elysium is also incredible i have fewer things to say about it because i've only played through it like once or twice, whereas New Vegas I've played a lot. But Disco Elysium also has a lot of those things that I really enjoy, like the way that you treat characters in the beginning of the game that seem like they're going to be completely inconsequential. The random racist dude that you can run into on the side of the road. Like, the way that you interact with him can, one, it can make your character become a racist, or two, you know, it can make your character become 
less racist or, you know, more of an anti-racist. And then when you run into a big racist guy further in in the main quest, it actually matters how you treated that first guy, who I don't think he actually really comes up again in the main quest, but if you accept his ideas of, like, racial supremacy, that'll change how you interact with people in the future, because your character, less so than the world around you, is changed by your actions. It's a really neat idea. I don't know how you would do that in another game. I think Disco Elysium is... You hear a lot about, like, ludonarrative dissonance, where your gameplay and the story you're telling in the game kind of mesh together. Or, sorry, the ludonarrative dissonance is when there's, like, a disconnect between your gameplay and the story you're telling. Disco Elysium is one of those games where they they are perfectly married together, and I couldn't see a game other than Disco Elysium working with that gameplay style. But I also couldn't see Disco Elysium's story working, at least not anywhere near as well as it does, without that gameplay style. Jackson, why don't you talk to us about a couple of the games that you're really into to sort of set up, you know, what you look for in games. I I specifically tried to find two games for this where it shows what I'm looking for both in a gameplay and narrative sense, um, but I couldn't. <laughs> so I picked one that I really like because of its narrative and one that I really like because of its world and gameplay. <laughs> the first one of these last of us which i don't i know i have talked about on this podcast before but i haven't talked about it a lot i don't think um the last of us it and god of war are constantly in a battle for which are my favorite game of all time uh currently i think last of us is winning mostly because i'm playing the remake for the first time but last of us it it makes you forget that you're playing a video game it's a very immersive yeah like not even just the fact that it's very immersive because it doesn't feel like a typical video game story like it feels like the story out of like a like a tv show or movie it's a because like it i don't know where to go with it you're saying that it's more like playing a movie than playing a game or watching a movie it's like a good marriage between the two mediums right yeah it it feels more like you're watching a movie or show than you're playing. But in a positive way. <laughs> yeah, like in, in a positive way, not in a bad way. Like, it's a game where the focus is not playing the game, but seeing the growth of the two main characters, Joel and Ellie, and seeing their story. It's more about that than, like, the gameplay of running around and stealthily taking out some dudes or zombies it i mean that's there and it is fun <laughs> but it's not why i play it i play it because it has one of the most emotionally driven very i guess brutal very like emotionally brutal games there is you were constantly seeing how people have adapted to this world overrun with the cordyceps virus and seeing them like seeing the what makes the difference between a person and a monster because it's a it's a common theme in this game that you run into people who 
are more monsters than the zombies themselves. This there guy specifically... is going to poop his pants when he finds out about Western media. <laughs> it, it, it's like that uh, that uh, scary door bit from Future Rob, <laughs> where he's trying to make the scariest monster. And then it pops out of the chamber and it just it just says, turns out it's man. But it's it's very horrific, but not in like a awfully super depressing way. Not that this game can't be depressing. There are very depressing moments in this game, but it's in a way that is somehow very lifeful and beautiful. You not only see tons of people that have like gone savage in an attempt to live but you also see groups of people who have turned it around to be better to better help them and the people around them and you see a world that's people are basically gone there's not many left it's all overrun by mushroom people (laughs) on top of that you see like all these forests that are like lush with life you see you know there's a big pivotal moment uh, that's famous from the game where you see giraffes uh, and you pet one and you see them like in the middle of a city, like in the middle of Salt Lake City, just walking around, making their way through. You see a lot of moments where people or the world around them are thriving despite what's happening. Yeah. To yeah. like the global human population. Right. Yeah. It. It. It's a game that very much shows the beauty during disastrous situations. I think that Last of Us is really unique in that it took a lot of ideas that are very, very familiar. You know, this post-apocalyptic zombie world and focusing on like the human side of it and focusing on how society gets by instead of more on the actual violence that ensues with the zombies but I think what Last of Us does that's so special is the emphasis on this one relationship. Whereas, you know, a lot of zombie media, it's about like big groups of survivors trying to bunker down and protect themselves. Whereas this is very much a story of two people on one epic journey. And that's not normally the kind of thing you see in this style of media. The The focus on... Joel and Ellie is very similar to the focus on Kratos and Atreus in God of War. There, there's not like there is a like a cast of characters alongside them, but the game is primarily focused on these two and bond between them. Specifically, like the bond being created. I mean, it's interesting you point out God of War because I think that Kratos and Joel's at least. I guess I haven't actually experienced Joel's character arc for myself, but from everything I've heard about it, Joel and Kratos, their arcs both revolve around letting go of their past and kind of accepting the responsibilities of fatherhood. I don't really know. I guess the game has been out for 10 years, so I can't get into spoilers, but... I wouldn't get into spoilers too much considering there's the new TV series. But if you could be vague, you know, that's fine. Last of Us opens up on, like, the world the day that the outbreak happens. And specifically on Joel and his daughter, Sarah. And 
uh, Joel's brother Tommy trying to escape Austin, Texas. But in that process, his daughter dies. And then there's a time jump to 20 years in the future where you see, you know, Joel's like, he's an old man just trying to get by. And then he's tasked with uh, taking a girl to the other side of the country. Like, a, a girl very much like his daughter. And you, the game has spent seeing the effect that it has on him. Trying to basically be a father again. When he hasn't been in 20 years. And has lost humanity in that process. So it's a very, it's a very emotional, brutal game, as I mentioned earlier. One thing I do think is kind of interesting is um, you pointed out something I've really never heard anyone talk about with The Last of Us, uh, where you were talking about the positive side of kind of the outbreak or like the more beautiful thing you the more beautiful things you see. Do you think you focus more on those things than the, you know, the people are the real monsters kind of thing? Um, I'd say it's a it's a good mix of both. I've just really never heard anyone talk too much about like the beauty of the world. I think it's because it doesn't come up too often in the game. There's a lot about The Last of Us that I appreciate. I just I could never quite stomach the combat in the game, which was clearly not meant to be the focus, but still takes up a good chunk of time, <laughs> especially early in the game. Yeah. I that's what I was thinking as well when you were talking about kind of experiencing it as playing a movie I felt like there were a lot of times where I was painfully reminded that I was playing a game yeah that does happen a good bit my biggest criticism of the game is that the combat very good I don't think it's bad by any means I like it it's just it it's not the best um they try to make it a little too lifelike but the story, at least for me, really drew me into the game. It was enough to detract from it not having very, I guess, clean combat. Feels very clunky. But that's why another game that I brought in was Breath of the Wild, which I have talked a bit, a, a good bit on this podcast before. Um, Breath of the Wild is not one that I really go to for the story. There's one there, but it's not very present. The world, however, the is very present it's also a basically abandoned world after the good old guardians go and tear it up <laughs> dang it drax that um, joke was just for jackson you can cut it out if you want jordan <laughs> but it was for jackson i think you should bleep it out but then leave this part in anyways breath of the wild really highlights one thing i look for in gameplay which is the ability to choose the way that you want to go about like progressing through combat it is very much a game of you have a bunch of tools, now figure out what to do with them. It's not like a shooter where it's like, okay, you have a gun, now shoot them. It's, you know, do you want to use, you know, do you want to sneak up and plant one of your runic bombs right in the center and then set it off and get a bunch of them off in one blow? Do you want to rush in with sword and shield and take out as many as you can? Do you want to... You want to use that to knock a tree into them and take all the enemies out. It's very, it's combat that isn't the, it's not one-sided. It It's very open-ended combat. It really lets you play it the way you want to play it. While also not feeling like a, you know, like, like an RPG where you just feel like you're like some different character because you play it differently. 
Yeah, I think the last time we talked about Breath of the Wild, I, I was talking about how one of its biggest strengths is just the fact that everything feels so improvisational. Like, you have the option to go in with a plan, but it feels like every feature of the game is kind of built for you to be able to do really cool stuff on the fly, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, like, the weapon durability, and especially the mechanic... Uh, that I think really comes to mind is the fact that if you throw a weapon and it breaks when it hits an enemy, then it does double damage. Yeah. Um, I know a big complaint people have with the game is the weapon durability, but it's very important to how the game functions. If you could just use the master sword, like the entire game, it wouldn't be as fun. Like there's a reason there's a limit on that. If you can just go into every combat scenario with the Master Sword and the best shield in the game, like it's going to lose what makes... It's going to lose its soul. <laughs> its soul lies in the fact that you have to be mindful of your resources and know what would be best for any encounters and know the different ways any encounters can be. Yeah, my only real complaint with the weapon durability in Breath of the Wild is that there's no repair. Option. Yeah. If there was a repair system, I I could like get behind that, but getting rid of it entirely would be a bad idea. Yeah. Like I think that it really forces you to kind of think on your feet because unless you're paying attention, there's a good chance when you get into combat, eventually your weapon is going to break and you're not going to have anything else that's necessarily as good as what you were already using. And it it really forces you to put like your runes into use in a way that I definitely don't think I would have used like the bomb runes quite as much mm -hmm. as I ended yeah. up using them if there was no weapon durability. I mean, I guess I know that for a fact because I I don't use the bombs for combat in other Zelda games. Yeah, I mean, they're usually another... like a limited amount, but generally there's this time though, plenty uh, of them. Uh, timer. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's another thing that I think really highlights like how special the combat and world fitting together of breath of the wild is because a lot of games when you have special abilities like that they will do one or two things they will affect the world or they will affect combat while in this you can use them for both there are you know constant like hidden walls you got to break down with the bombs or you know things you got to break that you can't quite hit from where you are that you got to use the bombs to throw there are rocks you can move to access new areas by using the stasis rune or you can use that to knock the rock into the enemies <laughs> there are ice blocks that you can make to either let yourself traverse or get yourself a high ground advantage there i i can't think of any other game where you can mix the world and combat so seamlessly and i think that's a why I think that's part of the reason why this game is so important to me because a lot of times I feel like they don't mix together very well in games and it detracts from it and the immersion while in this game it enhances it a lot yeah I've found that with uh, Breath of the Wild generally you either feel like MacGyver or MacGruber sometimes both that's a good thing for any game to have in my opinion <laughs> so it is an interesting sort of dichotomy looking at you know, both of Jason's games sort of fit into this more narrative forward, a lot of decision making. With Jackson's games, there's not nearly as much common ground there. Because I think that 
Last of Us told tells a big and bold story and has a lot to say about humanity, whereas Breath of the Wild is sort of pure video game. <laughs> yeah. It, its entire focus is being fun. <laughs> that kind of made this episode hard to put together for me because there isn't like one large specific thing that really like decides on if I am interested in a video game or not. Like like Jordan, like with you, like you're a big fan of roguelikes. Like there's usually a good chance if there's a new roguelike coming out, you're going to be interested in it. And like, I really like narrative driven games, but that doesn't necessarily mean like it's what I'm going to be interested in. And I like games with like, big open worlds like breath of the wild but that doesn't necessarily mean i'm gonna be interested in it there's usually like there there's a few like smaller things that i look for in video games than any like one big piece of video game architecture for sure and i think it's something that we'll we'll definitely touch on here shortly when we talk about <laughs> the role that video games have so before we get to that, though, I want to talk about a couple of games here that sort of encapsulate what I'm looking for in video games. Uh, those are Hades and Sekiro Shadows Die Twice. Hey, a roguelike. Yeah. So both of these have very, very different styles and visuals and aesthetics and just, just everything they do is different at first glance. But I think that they sort of point towards a really important thing for video games for me, which is progression. So Hades, you start off, uh, which a little bit of context on Hades. Uh, this is a game where you play as Zagreus, who is the son of Hades, the god of the underworld. And uh, Zagreus has decided that he is tired of living in the underworld and he is going to essentially just leave. But that requires battling his way out of the different realms of hell and to uh, overcome Hades' forces. And every time you fail, which will be frequently, you have to go back to the very beginning and you have to start your run over. But you get a little bit more powerful each time because there are three different resource types that feed into different upgrades that impact you or your weapons or your home base, which can affect you in different ways, you know, separate from yourself and your weapon. And there are just a lot of things you can do that make you progressively more powerful. And Sekiro, which is a From Software game, so you know it's a lot of dying and starting from scratch just on that fact, is the story of Sekiro, who is the, I don't even know what to describe. He's like the protector of a young prince uh, whose whole region has been taken over. And the prince is kidnapped. Sekiro loses his arm. He is saved by an old man who sets him up with this crazy prosthetic arm that can hold all these different weapons within it. And he's told that the world's being overrun with this sickness. And uh, you have to battle your way through all of these sort of uh, Japanese mythology-inspired characters and villains to get to this prince and to sort of restore balance to this place. But it also has the sense of you start off very weak and you have this insurmountable task in front of you and you are going to get there, but it's going to be gradual. 
And I always really appreciate games that have a gradual but steady progression to them. Whereas, you know, in Hades, you get stronger every time, but it's minimal. You know, it might just be you do a little bit more damage with this one specific weapon type. And the next time might be, well, you can use this attack one extra time. And those are not in and of themselves tremendous upgrades, but as they as you're as they're layered on top of each other and as you get comfortable with the mechanics and as you learn sort of the ins and outs of the game, you get to where you are able to consistently beat the game. You're able to consistently escape from from hell. And after that, you're you're doing it so well you're not even focusing on escaping anymore. You're focusing on how quickly you can do it. Or can you do it when you have things that are hindering your abilities or, you know, you just, you get progressively better. And it's both a mix of you are given tools that make you better, but also you are getting actually better at the game. Like even when I've gone back to start over on Hades where I've lost all of those upgrades, I think my first time through, it took me probably 50 attempts to beat the game for the first time. And then starting over from scratch, most recently, I beat it on my second attempt. So, like, there is a clear level of both skill that is getting better and the game is rewarding you for that, which I really, really love. Sekiro has a very similar vibe. You know, every time you beat a boss, you get just a little bit stronger. So much you're not even going to really notice it on regular enemies. But, you know, you beat one boss and the next time you fight a comparable boss, you can beat them in two, two less hits. Or whatever. And you just sort of build yourself up slowly until you're able to take on literal gods. And I just, I really, really love that in a game where it starts you with nothing and it lets you become something that you could have never pictured at the beginning. And I think that those things combined with really, really, really tight combat and narratives that are really strong but never force you to engage with them are like perfect because I do think that Hades and Sekiro both have really good stories and really good characters and really good worlds, but you're never forced to focus on those things. There's not a lot of long cutscenes. There's not a lot of wordy sections unless you want to seek those things out, which I really appreciate in a game. I've never been able to get into really any roguelikes. Because I would say generally, I just don't like doing the same thing over and over again. And like, I know, I mean, like you mentioned, like, it's a little different every time. And then you have the different boons and stuff like that from the gods, different weapons that you can use. But at the end of the day, Hades just, it's never really appealed to me because of how much redoing the same stuff there is. Yeah, I think that's a big reason that I don't tend to like play it for long periods of time but it is one that like i will find myself coming back to for like two or three runs at attempting to escape the the underworld every now and then but it's very i wouldn't say it's like re- super repetitive combat but being the type of game it is it does kind of wear off pretty quickly for me sure and i, I think it's like a totally valid thing i think it's something that honestly most people would agree with Because, you know, at face value in Hades, you fight the same four bosses. You go to the same four maps. They always, you know, they're always laid out a little bit different, but they always look the same. You encounter, there's only like 10 NPCs in the whole game. 
like I totally get what people are saying when that's when that's not enough for them or that's too repetitive. But for me, the diversity that keeps me going run after run after run has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with the choices that I'm given along the way. Like, uh, you know, every every time you finish a room, you get a boon and you know, those boons can pair with other boons in different ways. And because there's always some RNG to it, you're never going to end up with the same boons twice. And like for me, I could fight the same boss a hundred times as long as I get to use different tools to do it. And I think for me, that's enough. But I know for a lot of people, it is not. And Sekiro has a very similar vibe. You know, you do only have the one primary weapon, but you have, I think, like 10 different prosthetic weapons you can have as well. And then you can upgrade those in different ways. And no playthrough of Sekiro have I prioritized the same stuff. Um, I mean, my first time through, I was all about the axe. And another time I was all in on ninja stars. And then I beat it once trying to exclusively use the sword, which was brutal, but <laughs> you get there. And like, there's always, there's always options. And sometimes those options aren't always laid out at the beginning, like some people prefer. But I just think that both games kind of fire on all cylinders when they are replayed just a little bit differently than the last time which, again, a lot of people don't care to get into, especially because these are both pretty difficult games. I think Hades has sort of a... It has more of a pressure to keep you moving, whereas it's always going to give you a little bit more to help you out. But, like, Sekiro is tough. I mean, it's one of the hardest games. It probably is the hardest game I've ever beaten. And I get why people would not want to you know, bang their head against the wall for however long it takes to beat any given boss. Just like Jason's list, yours is also one of two games that I keep finding myself being like, I want to play these, but I don't, but they feel like a commitment. Yeah. Because <laughs> on the Haiti side, it's more of a commitment of like, do I want to keep doing the same thing over and over again? Even though I recognize it's fun. It just will get repetitive for me fast. And the other side is, do I want to keep doing the same thing over again? But it's just because the bosses are hard and I know that I will lose to them countless times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's definitely a frustration that can set in with both of these games. I think if I, if I tried Hades at any other point in my life, I wouldn't have clicked with it nearly as much as I did. I think that that's, that's actually a really good segue into a, a, another conversation I wanted to have on this episode, and one that I am positive we are going to fall on different sides of, which is sort of the gameplay versus story debate. Now, obviously, they're both important, especially in different mediums or different genres of games. But I think that for me personally... I could play a game with a bad story but fun gameplay way more than I could ever play a game that was not fun but had a good story. And I I suspect that that is not an opinion both of you share. Jason, I want to hear your uh, take on this first. We already talked about a game that has a good story, but the gameplay couldn't keep me interested. The Last of Us. So I I won't have it be said that I only care about story and don't care about gameplay i definitely lean more towards the story though and i think what i'm saying here is that the last of us's gameplay is that bad 
<laughs> like, I, I think that if the story is like a 10, then I'll accept the gameplay being like a 3. Uh, but The Last of Us is like a gameplay at 2, and I don't know enough about the story. Um, so Mine definitely differs. I think good gameplay can make a game with a bad story good, but I also think a good story can make a game with get bad gameplay good. I, I definitely fall in the middle here. I I would say I usually... I, I would say most of the time, though, what will have me more interested in a game is its world and story and characters than the gameplay itself. But I do still really like some good gameplay. I mean, I I think generally everyone kind of falls somewhere in the middle. Nobody's going to be like a gameplay absolutionist or a story absolutionist. Although I, I imagine there are a lot more people that are gameplay absolutionists than story but like there are games out there that generally don't have a story that i like you know tony hawk pro skater good game uh no no real story not not anything that matters but i i think that it's a little bit different when you actually get into games that do have a story i think if you're playing a game and the gameplay is is good but the story is just like garbage and like every time you see a cutscene, you start groaning because of how poorly written or how terribly acted or anything like that it is i i think there's definitely limits on both sides i can't think of any great examples of just terrible stories right now maybe part of that is that it's really hard for a game to hit that you know with movies how you can have a movie that's so bad it's good i think with games yeah. it's a lot harder to hit that that point that like for sure where it, it it finally crosses the hump into actually being entertaining because of how bad it is well i think that's for two reasons one is that games are a much bigger time commitment generally speaking than movies are when, when we talk about movies that are so bad they're good it's very rarely one of those like three and a half hour epics uh it's normally like two hours max and also Games have so many people that have so many hands on the ball the entire process that, like, they can't all be completely terrible at what they do. But, like, with movies, there it, there can be a director with such a bad vision <laughs> that that it ends up circling back around. Where I think with games, there's, like, a safe... There's a safeness to it. I also think that, like, AAA gaming is so inundated with games that have good gameplay but terrible stories or no story at all in a lot of cases. I mean, look at your your Call of Duties, your Fortnites, your... I mean, I know Destiny 2 has a story. Does it? Yeah, I mean, like, it doesn't matter. It's got right? lore, so, like, that's the for gameplay, sure. The gameplay is good enough that it doesn't necessarily matter that the story is barely there. But I think that... You could have a game where the story is really in your face and no amount of good gameplay would really be able to cover that up. I think that's a, that's a good way to put it because, like, for example, I play a lot of Borderlands 2. I'm, actu I'm actively in the middle of a replay, which I do probably at least once a year. And I've probably done since the game came out. And I really, really love the gameplay of Borderlands 2. And I really love its progression systems and a lot of its style. But I... I really don't like its story. I think that its sense of humor is just grating at times, and there is a whole lot of 
story beats that are just not necessarily plot holes, but they're just contingent on a lot of people not thinking about things a certain way. And like that's stuff that would sink a lot of other games, but Borderlands 2, you can largely ignore the story. I mean, more often than not, I am playing the game with the sound off while I'm listening to a podcast or something. So like it's definitely easier if a game story isn't all over the place. For example, Borderlands 3, it has a lot more cutscenes. You have to spend a lot more time listening to people talk. You have to wait for people to finish what they're doing just to hand you an item. You cannot ignore that game story. So even though I think it has better gameplay than Borderlands 2, I still play it way less just because you can't just bypass a story. You have to engage with it for several hours. It's way too much. Yeah, and I, I just feel like so many games play it safe with the story and gameplay where they'll kind of use things that are really tried and true. That it's kind of hard to find an example. Yeah. Um, but like that said, I could see people not liking Disco Elysium and New Vegas both because of poor gameplay. Disco Elysium is basically a point and click adventure game. And there was definitely a point when there were a lot of games that were kind of styled like that. But generally they had some kind of strategy or I mean, like there are other similar games that you move around and explore the world the same way as Disco Elysium. I mean, the first one that comes to mind is like the original Fallout games or, you know, Baldur's Gate, stuff like that. But I can see like not everyone really wants to do that kind of thing. Not everyone really wants to play a game where there is no combat at all. You know, no, no combat mechanics, no like interesting traversal. It's all just kind of walking around and interacting with the environment. And New Vegas has terrible gunplay. Yeah, that was definitely a big reason that New Vegas was very hard for me to get into. <laughs> New Vegas is also kind of dated looking. I, I don't think Disco Elysium has this issue just because it's it's very, it's very much stylized. like in its art style. Yeah, it has this beautiful, you know, hand painted look to everything. But New Vegas is uh, brown. Uh, it's it's all <laughs> desert. It's it's all just blend. It, it blends together. It's not a very attractive looking game, so it's ugly. Like I mentioned, the the gunplay is not very good. It wasn't good for the time. It's certainly not good now. Part of me thinks the only reason that vats exist in Fallout is just something to fix the gunplay to an extent. I mean, vats was in Fallout One. Dang it! But I I'm hear what you're saying. Vats is basically just a crutch in Fallout 3 and Fallout New Vegas. Is it even in Fallout 3? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't played 3 in a long time. Like, it's it's very much a crutch just to make up for it. So I could definitely see someone, you know, even if you're really interested in what's going on in New Vegas, you really like the revenge plot or you really like the bigger plot of figuring out who's going to take Hoover Dam. But they're not exactly fun to play. It's not something that you could really pick up and put down, which I think is kind of what a lot of gameplay is definitely leaning towards these days where yeah. you can just play for 15, 20 minutes and, and then save it and turn it off and not have to worry about it. I don't necessarily know that either of them are really built around that, but I think that the story of both of those games is enough to keep me entertained. And I love those games. They hold a very special place in my heart. You know, I say a lot, that there are, there are a lot of games out there 
that I would like better as a book. And obviously, a lot of them wouldn't work as a book because games like Disco Elysium and New Vegas, player choice is a huge part of it. With a book, you don't have that choice. But I'm making a proposal right here and right now. Adult choose-your-own-adventure books should be a more significant, should have a more significant market. I want a book, I want a book version of Fallout New Vegas that's like 2,000 pages long, but your actual reading experience is only like a quarter of those because you keep skipping around. Like anytime you meet someone from a new faction, it's like, if you like what they're saying, go to this page. If you don't, go to this page. But it does that like 50 times, where I guess a regular choose-your-own-adventure for like kids would only do it like three. New Vegas, it would have to have like every page give you an option to uh, kill this person because that's that's an option and there needs to be a random chance whenever you turn the page that you end up somewhere completely wild because somebody died way off screen (laughs) that happened to me in one of my most recent playthroughs is an important npc died while i was still in the first town like i have no idea how it happened they shouldn't have been in the first town so like i don't know why they were even loaded into a situation where they could die but it was just like yep they died you're gonna have to start a new game so something I've been thinking about a lot lately, uh, specifically in preparation for this episode, is the concept of immersion in games. Because it's something that you hear a lot about in game discourse, uh, generally in a negative way, where someone will find out that like the protagonist of a game is like a gay black woman, and then like the straightest, whitest man in the world's like, I could never enjoy that because I ain't immersed. And... You know, clearly that's like a non sequitur, but I think that the immersion conversation is actually pretty important because that's a big part of what games are for us. And like for me personally, this is a dismissive way to talk about it, but like I don't care about immersion. Like I know that sounds really weird to say, but like for me personally, the games that tell the best stories tell the stories of already established characters in a fixed way. Like I strongly prefer games, generally linear games like God of War or Horizon or something. I am much more invested in their stories than I am in these bigger RPGs where you create yourself and go on a, you know, a journey of a, a potentially a thousand different directions. For me, I don't necessarily care to be as immersed as much as I care to see a thorough and complete story being told in front of me. But I also recognize that is not a popular opinion, especially in certain genres of games. I think there's just more to immersion than fully inhabiting a character or anything like yeah. that. I mean, like, I'm going to keep coming back to it because New Vegas is really good for this kind of thing. <laughs> like, New Vegas, part of what makes it so good is also that you can just play you can make up any character idea that you want and then play that character in the world. And obviously you're you're still limited because there's only a, there's only so many things that you can say in a conversation. And sure. you know sometimes those options just none of them are completely in the character you're working towards. But I think a bigger thing is more just feeling like the character that you're playing as is a part of the world and feeling like like it's that kind of immersion. Feeling like you're affecting the world in the game. Not so much that you feel like you're in the game, 
but that you're fully able to experience the game. You know, all the sights and sounds <laughs> that it has to offer. Right. Immersion, when I think about it, that's probably the thing that is the most important to me in video games. All the video games that I can think of that I really love are ones that I feel immersed in the world when I'm playing. Like, I feel like I, I feel like somewhere out there it is real. <laughs> yeah, like there are some games like Immersion's never gonna be a big thing for a Fire Emblem game, right? Because you're playing as fifteen to twenty characters when you're in a fight. Your <laughs> yeah. your main character is an anime person and there's no real decisions being made. Like in some of them, like you can really design your character, how they look. You can generally choose if it's a boy or a girl in the modern ones, but like your character doesn't really feel like they're a part of the world. It just feels like they're your avatar to the world. I think that's why I don't really connect with games like fire emblem. And I think that even goes into it's like, I, I guess fire emblems and RTS, it goes into it's like RTS combat. Like, it's explicitly not real time. But yeah, I get what you're saying. It's a strategy game. <laughs> like I I think that's why games like that don't really appeal to me cuz not like cuz there's a, you know, 20 plus characters or whatever. It's cuz the gameplay does not feel immersive. Like it doesn't feel like the things are actually happening. It it feels like you're just like watching like a bunch of snippets of the thing happening. <laughs> Yeah, I would say generally in any strategy game. I, I've never played one where it feels like... You know what? I take that back. XCOM is a decent example of where it's a strategy game, but you still feel immersed. Because in that game, you're not any of the people on the field. You're the commander back at base. And everything that you do in the game is in your role as the commander. So even though, like... I'm not a military commander. I'm able to kind of get immersed in the game, in the world, because of the things that I have to do and how I'm interacting with the world. But like Fire Emblem, I think of it more as being, I'm still kind of in the commander role, right? But the game doesn't treat me like that. The game treats me like I'm Marth, Roy, Crom, Robin. I guess Crom's a bad example. You you do not play as Crom. <laughs> uh, you yeah. play as Robin. But like, you can't really get immersed because you're not really playing as this character. You're playing as some kind of unseen force telling everyone in the game what to do. But you compare it to a game like, you know, Fallout New Vegas, I'll come back to. Like, you can kind of inhabit that character because you're controlling what the character does. You're controlling how the character interacts with the world around them and the world responds to you in turn. But I, you know, I also need to point out, like, there's nothing inherently bad about not being immersive. Like, is XCOM necessarily a better game than Fire Emblem because of the level of immersion that it kind of puts you through? No. Like, it doesn't really make any difference on how you play the game. It doesn't really make any difference on how you think about the people in the game. It's just there. And if you look at, I think, Red Dead Redemption 2 is a really good example of a game where it's very immersive... Um, to the point where it's taken too far sometimes. <laughs> like, when you're cooking things on the fire, or when you need to clean your horse. Like, it's immersive, but it's a game. It doesn't need to be that level of immersion. It doesn't need that level of immersion. Like, it's taken it's, too far to where it kind of becomes a bad thing, and something that kind of detracts from the game. It's immersing you in a thing you don't want to do in real life. <laughs> I personally like that, though. 
I I like when things like that aren't just like skipped over because I have they... a good I have a really important question for this. How much Red Dead Redemption Two have you played? I haven't. Yeah, no, but you don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. You you need to play it because it's it seems really cool. And like when they were showing it off beforehand, and when you first start playing Red Red Dead Redemption Two, it feels really cool. Like how immersive it is. Like all the different stuff you have to do. It gets old because like you're not here for that. I didn't specifically mean like the stuff like that in that game, but like that sort of stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, like I was, I'm not saying that immersion is good or bad. I, I'm just it can be good, and it can help, but it can be taken too far. Like Red Red Redemption 2 is one of the most immersive games out there, at least that I've played. But a lot of that ends up detracting from the gameplay and ends up kind of making the game worse in some ways. There's one more thing I want to talk about on this episode. And this is sort of the, of a of a biggie. This might get almost philosophical <laughs> in a sense. And that's not necessarily what I want, but I, I think we could end up there. I want to talk a little bit about why we play video games because I think that it's it's a medium that is so involved and has grown so much in such a short period of time that we're kind of forced to think about it differently. No one ever stops to think like, why do I read books or watch movies or whatever? But I think with video games, there's a lot of criticism of people that play a lot of games there's a lot of assumptions made about people based on the fact they play a lot of video games that sort of merits a conversation about why we bother with this medium at all and i think we also have very different reasons for that i mean i play a lot of shorter faster paced games that have a lot of you know like jason was talking about games today have a lot of start and stop built into them and i like that because i like video games to be a part of my life that just kind of slots in wherever. And I like to dive into a game for half an hour and then turn it off. And I know some people go to video games for much more artistic reasons. So let's kind of just start there. Jason, why are you a gamer, TM? I have a kind of basic answer of just, I like stories. (laughs) I like the stories that are told by a lot of my favorite games. And I think that Video games with their interactive element gives you kind of an opportunity to experience those stories in a way that no other medium would ever let you. Like people joke about choose your own adventure books, but even some visual novels that I've played, like they're much more complex and interesting than choose your own adventure books. There's so much that can be done with games. And I think a big part of that is because you interact with the character when they're not just in a conversation. When you are in those conversations, you sometimes get a chance to dictate where the conversation goes. What's your character going to say? And when you're in the combat, which, you know, it's cool to read about combat too, but when you're actually playing a video game and you get to feel the action and be like, I'm the one doing that on some level is really cool and really unique. So I guess the power fantasy is part of it, I, you, you could say, <laughs> sure, uh, of just sure. being like, like when I'm playing God of War and I'm playing as Kratos and just, you know, absolutely demolishing people with the axe or with the chain blades, like that 
feels cool, and there's no other medium where I could do that other than I dreaming. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Video games are the closest to the level of interaction that you could get when you're having when you're just imagining something, <laughs> and that's really cool. I think that's a reason why I can very easily connect with a story and things in a game versus a book because the things in a game they are actively happening and you are actively seeing them happen and like i'm not trying to i i feel like i've given uh this this idea that i'm trying to say books are bad that is not what i'm trying to say <laughs> um i have read some good books <laughs> how many tell us uh, seven I, th- I, I think like two <laughs> but um books at least for me personally, I have to, I, I tend to find myself having to stop and think and put the book on pause to like get a grasp of love of like, what's going on? How does the, how does the author want me to imagine this situation? Cause it's very typical when I read, I read in the sense of in my head, I am seeing these characters actually like having this conversation (laughs) that's the only way i can do it so like a video game or show that is already what is happening i don't have to stop and imagine this because i'm seeing it because i am immersed in it which then i just have to think of like what does this mean and sometimes what it means is just i shot a gun at an alien (laughs) (laughs) I was so on board with what you were saying. And then it's at some point in the middle there, I think it might have been when you implied that you couldn't imagine something while you were reading. <laughs> I just really disconnected all of a sudden. <laughs> but like, I get it. I definitely prefer kind of being able to see what's going on. Because when I imagine things, it's kind of more abstract. You know, like I imagine an apple and it's more just like an uh, outline of an apple and it's red. <laughs> It's like a child's drawing. But when I see a video game, like I get to see it's kind of the culmination of like so many people working together in a really cool way. And they're all vastly more talented than me in some way or another. You know, some of them are good, right, better writers than me. Some of them are, are better artists than me, like at drawing or, you know, 3D modeling or whatever. And I, I think it's really cool to kind of see all of that come together. And it's generally more creative than what I would imagine, at least in the games that I play. Um, I can imagine a Call of Duty game pretty easily. <laughs> Name a country. America. All right, they got guns. Name another country. Uh, 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 uh. Rwanda. Um, they got guns. All right, so now I'm going to come up with something vaguely racist about Rwandans, uh, and then... That's going to be the justification for the Americans to go in and shoot. All right. So the Americans, they're wearing, um, they're, they're wearing camo. Um, the other, the other side, I don't know, probably wearing like t-shirts. They're guerrilla fighters. That means they're bad people because if they were good people, there would be a military industrial complex and they would have a lot of, you know, really expensive clothes and tanks and stuff. Activision, if you're hiring. Yeah, I think you may have just like. You, you may have just made the, the Call of Duty game with the most thought put into it. All right. What I'm going to do next is imply that the enemy country in this game committed a war crime that actually America committed. 
I'm going to draw a war map, but I'm going to leave off some pretty important lines. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that, you know, talking about the the book side of it, it's actually kind of a, a pivotal difference for the three of us is, you know, I read a lot. I, I start and end every single day reading. And I think that like that sort of scratches the itch that you all want from video games sometimes, which is why I think I'm cooler with playing sort of mindless games. I I can accept the whole uh, this, I pressed the button and it made the number bigger. I can accept that part of video games a little bit more because like I'm already sort of engaging with more complex stories in a different facet. And I'm not saying that that means I'm better and smarter than the two of you. I'm just implying it. <laughs> no, I just think that, you know, we engage with other media differently. So that also means that we want different things from video games, which is sort of another reason that I think I have a hard time really getting into games like Disco Elysium because I've kind of already burned myself out. I've already burned out the part of the, the brain that wants to engage on that level before I ever even have turned the game on. Another big thing that I like in video games versus books is actually being able to have some effect on the outcome of the story. For sure. For Generally, sure. games only have one. like a couple of endings. But, you know, like even in New Vegas, it's pretty cool that the choices that I made in the game affect the world and the characters. Like, like I've mentioned several times so far. But like once you finish fallout new vegas there is an ending slideshow where it kind of tells you what happened to all of your companions after the events of the game and what happened to other notable people in the game as well and sometimes you haven't interacted with the person it's talking about at all <laughs> but then other times like just finishing one side quest differently could completely change how one of those ending slides is and it kind of gives a different context to a lot of things. Like, I can hang out with Rex all I want, but, you know, if I side with one of the factions, that could have an effect on what happens to him after the game. And if I, you know, complete his companion quest in a different way, like, that'll have a different effect, even if, you know, it's the best-case scenario faction-wise. Like, maybe I made the wrong decision and he's gonna die for some other reason seeing the culmination of all of my time played with the game and being like, all right, so all of that stuff that happened in that ending slideshow, like that was the result of my actions. And I think that's really cool. And there's, you can't do that with books because, you know, even the best written book, there's no way you'd be able to come up with all of these different, you, you wouldn't be able to get all of these different endings, you know, all working together and affecting each other. So I guess that there's just like, this really satisfying feeling when you complete a game like that. I don't think there's another way to get that feeling in media. I mean, I guess you could go out and positively affect the world around you, but there's no ending slideshow. <laughs> yeah, I don't get a plus one to uh, guts or whatever because I ate a big burger in real life, but I do in Persona, and that's better. When I eat the big burger in real life, I have to go to the hospital. <laughs> And then I get heartburn still. I guess that the moral of the story behind all of this is that we play video games because they're better than real life. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, I mean, I feel like on some level, that's part of it. It's just like, there, the things that you can experience in games, like there's no possible way to experience a lot of that in real life. Yeah. Like, there's no way sure. that I could go out and, and have a cool sword fight with like, <laughs> right. like where I'm, where I'm killing people and I'm, and I'm, you know, you could go have a cool swords, sword, fu- sword fight. You just will be dead or in the hospital. <laughs> I hear yeah. what you're saying. Also, I would have to find someone else that wants to have a cool sword fight. I'll have a sword fight. All right. But one of us is going to die. Probably you. Okay. Whatever <laughs> you say, bud. <laughs> Look, I'm the one that has a lightsaber literally hanging up on my wall right now, so I would I wouldn't argue with me about it. See, that's the exact thing I'm talking about. <laughs> you know what group of people would excel in a fight? Star Wars fans. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Look, I have lightsabers too, or whatever, right? But like that's really lame compared to actually going out and like having a sword. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. On the topic of being able to do things in video games that you can't do on in real life, I can't. I can't go and explore like a like rundown deserted city. I can't go explore rundown deserted Seattle in real life. Like, well, until you go... specified Seattle, you picked like the one thing in games you could do. <laughs> well, not you know a rundown like, not not the version from The Last of Us Part Two. <laughs> I was even going to say, I guess you couldn't explore a version overrun with zombies, but again, it, you picked Seattle. So <laughs> I can't, I can't go explore, you know, Hyrule and go through the lost kingdom of Hyrule, go through the castle and sure, you know, in destiny, you can go to earth. You can't go to earth in real life. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that was the big draw for me. It was finally getting to explore earth. To to bring up Destiny, of course, because it wouldn't be this podcast without it. Like, it's okay. I brought up New Vegas like fifteen times. <laughs> Destiny has worlds like the Dreaming City, which are these hidden, mysterious worlds full of mysticism and mystical powers that defy the laws of physics. You can't go and explore that in real life. <laughs> and like, I I like to be able to do that. I want to go see things that I can't see in real life and think like, wow, what if that was in real life? Why I like progression as such a tremendous part of games is because comparatively video games are very confined. You know, things move in one direction and, you know, you're always getting stronger. I, I really like the comparison of uh, real life to Final Fantasy <laughs> Because in the Final Fantasy games, there's pretty much a recurring theme that you start off as an absolute nobody. This is someone that has no prominent skills. They're not a contributing member of society. They You start off where you're fighting big rats with a stick. And then by the end of the game, you are using holy powers to destroy an evil god that's threatening to destroy the entire world. And like... The build-up to that is satisfying in a way that nothing in real life on us, like, in that short of a time frame can be. And, like, I like the fact that video games, you can always move forward. Whereas, you know, sometimes in real life, you just do the same thing every day. And, like, that's fine. But there has to be, like, something else. Like, that escapism level... Of, of gaming, I, th- I think, is is really important. Also, it's cool to fight a 
big evil god with the you know fancy glowing sword and all that. <laughs> well, this has already been a real long discussion about video games and their role and what we think about them and all that jazz. So I think that it's time that we pulled the plug. <laughs> flush, 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 flush. Jackson, what is something else that you have not talked about on this episode already that you have been into? Have you ever heard of the frickin' Last of Us? No, tell me about it. So, last week, the Last of Us show aired its first episode, and it was very good. It was ten times better than I thought it would be. It is very close to the source material. I mean, I wasn't expecting them to just do, like, a full 180 on it or whatever, but they stayed, they stayed pretty close to it. And, you know, after things like the Halo show, I just, I get worried about that. It, it, like I said, only has had one episode so far, but it was very good. Even with, like, other video game movies or in, in series that managed to do a good job of, like, accurately portraying the source material. They still don't have, like, the exact same vibe as the games. Like, the Sonic movies, like... Those were very good. And even though I haven't played a lot of Sonic, of what I've played, I don't get the same vibe from them. It's Adventure Era vibes. Very strong Adventure Era vibes. <laughs> At least they chose the good ones. The Last of Us show stays very true to the vibes of the game. It The, the actors do a phenomenal job of capturing the original characters from the game, while also... Not feeling exactly like the same thing. Bella Ramsey plays Ellie in this. And there are a lot of times where she sounds exactly like Ashley Johnson did voicing Ellie in the game. And has her mannerisms down like exact. To the point where it was like I was forgot that it wasn't the original character. <laughs> and then Pedro Pascal is playing Joel. And after Mandalorian I love that guy. Only other thing I've seen him in, though, but I love that guy. He does a great job of it, too. He really gives off old man vibes. Because that's the only significant thing about the character of Joel, that he's an old man. Nothing else. So, yeah, only one episode, so not much to talk about. Uh, I probably won't bring it up again on the podcast until the final episode is aired. So, Jason, what have you been talking about? What have you been... What are you up to? I'm so happy you asked. I've been playing... Fire Emblem Shadow Dragon, which was a DS remake of the original Fire Emblem Shadow Dragon and the Blade of Light or whatever, something similar to that full title. Um, it's pretty good. I basically I saw that Fire Emblem Engage had the protagonists of a whole bunch of the older Fire Emblem games. So then I bought as many of the older Fire Emblem games as I could so I could play those. Uh, but the problem is I decided to do this a week ago, and each one's like 15, 20 hours, uh, so I don't have anywhere near enough time. Uh, and to prove that, I haven't finished the first one, even though I've started playing the newest one, Engage. They're pretty fun. I like them both. I think there's a little bit to like about each that the other's kind of missing. Fire Emblem Shadow Dragon definitely has like a tighter story, and from my experience so far, more defined characters. Uh, but Fire Emblem Engage is newer, and it's very, very good looking. 
Um, I really like the art style they ended up going with for this one. It's really pretty, very vibrant colors. I don't really have too much to say. I I kind of realized in my time playing Fire Emblem Engage that I really didn't need to try to go back for all those other characters to figure out more about all those other characters because uh, they're all in Engage, but only Marth matters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've also been playing Engage. Uh, I was sort of first introduced to the series through Three Houses. I played a very little bit of Awakening and Fates back in the day, but never like really connected with either of them i'm still a little bit on the fence about engage uh i think that three houses went a little overboard with some of the social stuff and this game definitely has a lot less of that but i kind of feel like they got rid of a lot of the game's choice and personality by cutting out so much of it i'm just now at the point where i think the game's starting to open up so that might change in the near future but i don't think we're going to do an episode on on it so I was probably I'll probably just do a pulling the plug on it in a couple of weeks once I've finished it, but I think that Fire Emblem fans are gonna really really like Engage, and specifically Fire Emblem Three Houses fans aren't going to like it as much. <laughs> yeah. I'm very confused about you saying back in the day about Fire Emblem Fates. Wasn't that on the 3DS? Yeah, but that was like ten years ago now. <laughs> like, oh my god, I'm old. No, you're not. It's kind of interesting with the older Fire Emblem games. Like, they're really kind of quick and to the point. Like, there's there's really not too much story, at, at least in Shadow Dragon, which it's the first one, so I know that's, like, definitely going to have the least story. It's really just about moving you between the different maps for combat and just being like, hey, our gameplay is good. Um, and Three Houses kind of took that whole idea, and they were like, what if while you were playing the good combat stuff, you also had to do a dating sim. And uh, if you're really good at the combat, then you're going to get bonuses for the dating sim. And if you're really good at the dating sim, then your characters will be better in the combat. And honestly, I was trying to say that disparagingly, but it's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, I do feel like Three Houses uh, was a neat experiment. And I wouldn't mind getting a Fire Emblem like that every once in a while, but I, I definitely kind of like engage, just kind of get into the combat. That said, it still has really long cutscenes in the intro that are just garbage. I don't care. Oh yeah, the story is nonsensical in this game. Uh, it it feels like it was written by an AI that just like had a bunch of low dollar store fantasy novels pumped into it. Um, it offers very little. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of the first times I've seen a character die in a game, and I'm like, finally. Yeah. <laughs> no more exposition. Like, or at yeah. least less. Someone else can do it now. I don't necessarily mind, like, the story as a whole. It's just, I hated the first couple of chapters of Engage with just, like, all of the characters suck. They're all so bad. Yeah. But I like the yep. characters that have been introduced since um, because they are... Uh, they keep their mouth shut. Um, <laughs> yeah. They only speak when spoken to. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm looking for in a Fire Emblem character. Yeah. It was easy in the last one because I was a teacher. And if they just if they spoke too much, I'd give them detention and walk away. That would have been a cool feature, honestly. 
just if you don't, you know, you can use the the social aspect to really increase your relationship and the combat prowess of characters, but you could also use it to just be like, I don't want you around. I want you to hate me. I'm going to send you out to die on the battlefield. Anyway, Jordan, what have you been up to? Well, I'm going to plug a competing podcast, so I apologize when every single one of our fans leaves our show to go listen to this one. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, I'm in the middle of a playthrough of Borderlands 2, and generally when I'm playing Borderlands 2, I play it with the sound off and I'm listening to a podcast. Uh, this time around, that podcast is not another D&D podcast, which is a D&D podcast, even though the, the name might suggest otherwise. No, not. Tell them the best part. Tell them the best part. So the cast is... It's got Murph. It's got uh, a lot of college humor alums. Just some really cool people across the board. You have Brian Murphy, it's the DM, and then Emily Axford, Caldwell Tanner, and Jake Hurwitz are the players. They're just, across the board, some of the funniest people out there. I think that they bring such a cool energy to Dungeons & Dragons because they want it to be that ridiculous, over-the-top, eccentric experience, but they also have a authenticity to the storytelling that I think is very, very cool. Like, they all want to make a lot of jokes, but they all want to do them in service of a greater story. And I think that that's something that a lot of Dungeons & Dragons content struggles with. It's either just a fantasy narrative or it's just comedy, and it doesn't walk that line very well. But I think that this one walks it exceptionally. It also has just a really cool format to it where it'll be a very long and really important plot. Like, there will be, like, a 10-episode arc that's about something world shattering. It's a introducing a major villain or a major hero or something into the fold. That'll be, you know, a, a pretty lengthy and pretty pretty story heavy set of episodes. Then they'll do like a three to four episode mini arc between each one. That's more of like a decompressing thing. And for those, they'll have on other guests, which are generally other college humor alumni. And uh, I just think it has such a cool vibe to it. Like, it's such a... It's it's both a relaxing podcast and has a really good plot to it, which is not something that I think I've ever really heard in any other podcast. Because I listen to a lot, of, like, a lot of Dungeons & Dragons stuff, namely the Adventure Zone and Dungeons and & Daddies, which are both exceptional. But I think this one has just a really, really unique energy to it. And I think that this is probably the most appealing to not Dungeons and Dragons fans, just because I think these are funny people telling a cool story, where the other ones are definitely a little more niche. Plus, this one has Murph. Yeah. If you like Dungeons and Dragons, or you really like the College Humor cast, uh, definitely definitely check this one out. It's not another D&D podcast. That just about does it for another episode of the Totally Biased Media Podcast. If you would like to reach out to us, there are a handful of ways you can do that. First, on Twitter, at TBMcast. Second, on Instagram, at Totally Biased Media. Third, you can send an email to totallybiasedmedia at gmail.com. Uh, we would love to hear your reviews for recent release games, your suggestions for what we talk about on the show. Uh, anything you want to tell us, we would love to hear it, and we were happy to engage. Jason mentioned it before, but if you want to check us out on Twitch, we're trying to stream every weekend now. That is twitch.tv slash totallybiasedmedia. Uh, it is the year of the Kong. We're working our way to the Donkey Kong Country games. Then we're jumping over to 64 and then the more recent Donkey Kong Country games. So we got a lot planned. So you should come check it out. But 
for the Totally Biased Media Podcast. I'm Jordan Walkup. I'm Jason Simmons. And I'm Jackson Walkup. And you just felt the bias. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs>